First Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, Shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. 
And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Kenanana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army. Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, 
and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Hebrews chapter 1, starting from verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, 1 Kings 22. Uh, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a confusing passage um, really, to end our studies in 1 Kings. Uh, but actually, it's a, it's a very appropriate passage as we draw to the end of this book. And we've been saying that as we've been looking through the book of 1 Kings, that it's, it's, well, it's a history book of Israel's kings, um, starting from around 900 years before Christ. Um, but it's more than just a history book. 1 Kings is a sermon from history. It's a book that is written for us today and for God's people throughout the ages to learn from. So it's kind of like books that we might get on uh, World War I or World War II. Often they're not written just to record the facts. They're written in such a way as to warn us so that we do not repeat the mistakes of history. And, and 1 Kings uh, is written in that way. It's a sermon using these real events that actually did happen in history. And I think as we've studied this as a church, really there's been two things that have stood out for us, uh, for me certainly, as we've looked at this book. Firstly, 1 Kings has shown us the, the importance and the necessity for God's people to have a king a leader, and not just any king. It has to be a king who is perfectly obedient to God's word. That's what we've been seeing all throughout 1 Kings. God's people need a leader. If there is to be any salvation, if there's to be any of the fulfillment of the promises that God has made, they need a king who will be perfectly obedient to God's word. And as we've looked at this, we've seen that all of this is building up for us a picture of Jesus Christ, who is God's ultimate and last king. But the second thing that One Kings has, I think, challenged us on as a church is our commitment to the Bible, our commitment to God's word. Um, and that commitment that we must stick by it despite the surrounding cultural pressures. There's been a real call throughout 1 Kings, of a wholehearted commitment to God that is seen in a wholehearted commitment to his word. Now, before we dive in, I just want to clear something up. I made a mistake a couple of weeks ago. Um, I said that the, the main character in the second half of the book of 1 Kings is Elijah, um, and that's not true. The main character in the second half of this book is the word of God. 
That is the main character. So there's a lot on Elijah in chapter 17 to 19, um, but he's really the focus there because he is God's mouthpiece, God's speaking through him. And in chapters 20 to 22, I know we've not, we've not read uh, chapters 20 and 21, but you, you can see in those chapters, read it for yourself, Elijah kind of fades out. And what we see is that this king, who we've been looking at, King Ahab, this wicked, horrible man, King Ahab, we see his encounters with God's word. So the first encounter comes through an unnamed prophet in chapter 20. Uh, The second encounter he has with God's word comes through Elijah in chapter 21. And the third encounter comes through uh, this guy that we're going to meet tonight, who has now become one of my, my absolute heroes, this guy, Micaiah. And we're going to see how Ahab encounters God's word through him. So the word of God That is one of the key characters in this book. Now, I need to lay some important groundwork from the onset so that we can understand the relevance of 1 Kings 22 for us today. You see, back then, before Christ, God spoke to his people through prophets, through people like this this guy, Micaiah. It wasn't just anyone. These were very special people chosen by God to be his mouthpiece. But that is not how God speaks to us today. Uh, That's why I was keen that we really uh, read that section from Hebrews 1, which is really, really helpful, isn't it, when we come to uh, a passage about prophets in the Old Testament. And in Hebrews 1, the author told us there that in the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us. That's us here today. He has spoken to us through his Son. And the Son, Jesus, is the ultimate revelation of God because, as the author of Hebrews says, he is God. He is the exact representation of his being. We live in the time of the the last and the final prophet, the time where God's word came not through a person but as a person. So Jesus is, is God's word. Jesus is God's final revelation. That is how God speaks to us today. And if we want to learn about Jesus... There's only one place that we can go to, and that's here, the Bible. All of this is about Jesus Christ. Every single chapter is about Jesus Christ. And actually, Jesus, there's a really good verse that's helpful to understand that in John chapter 5, verse 39. And Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of his time because they're studying the Scripture so diligently And he rebukes them and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but you don't realize that they testify about me. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus. The whole Old Testament with books like 1 Kings, they are all pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. And in the New Testament, we read of the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, God's chosen king, and it all points forward to the return of Jesus. So if we want to know God today, if we want to hear God speak to us, there's one place and one place alone where he does that. And it's in this book here, the Bible. This is the word of God. This is where we encounter Jesus Christ, the exact representation of his being. And that sets us up for tonight because there's a real challenge here, I think, tonight in 1 Kings 22 as to how we view God's word. How do we view the Bible, really? 
If this, is, if this here is where we see Christ, this is where we hear from the voice of God, then this is the most precious thing that we have in the entire universe. And the big question is, how do we know that's true? And amidst all the voices, there's so many different opinions out there, so many different ideas of, of who God is and even who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. How can we know that this is really true? And how do we live as if it's true? And that's where I think 1 Kings 22 is really going to help us and challenge us this evening. So I've got three points from this chapter. Um, and look at those points, aren't they brilliant? Three-point alliteration, nice and snappy. Firstly, we're going to see the challenge of the true word. Secondly, we're going to see the clarity of the true word. And thirdly, we're going to see the certainty of the true word. Okay, firstly then, the challenge of the true word. Looking at verses 1 to 18 of this text. Okay, what's, what's happening? Here, here's what's happening uh, in this text. The, the southern kingdom at this time, the southern kingdom of Judah, is ruled by a guy called Jehoshaphat. Uh, he is for the most part, a very good guy, a faithful guy, a guy who seeks to, to live by God's word. And the northern kingdom is ruled um, by somebody very different, this guy Ahab. And you may be familiar with him if you've been coming along on Sunday nights. Uh, he is a, a wicked man and a horrible man in many ways. But Ahab has somehow managed to get an alliance with Jehoshaphat. The two of them have joined together. Because Ahab wants to take this city uh, with a really cool name. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings. Uh, Ramoth-Gilead. So Ahab and Jehoshaphat are going to go together to war to take the city, Ramoth-Gilead, from the hands of the Syrians. Um, Jehoshaphat agrees to this, but he does give one condition before they to go and do this. Look at verse 5. He says, inquire first for the word of the Lord. So he's saying, look, I want to know, what, what does God think about all this? And so Ahab thinks, uh, okay, well, no bother. I've got these, I've got these 400 prophets on my payroll. Um, they should hopefully help appease you, Jehoshaphat. Uh, and of course, these, these 400 prophets, which evidently are not real prophets, they're, they're false prophets. Uh, they're guys that Ahab is just paying to affirm him. They come in and, and they prophesy and they say, yeah, God says, go to war and you're going to triumph and God's going to give this city into your hands. Um, and Jehoshaphat's thinking, well, this is probably a bit, this is a bit fishy. I think he smells a rat. He sees through this charade and he asks Ahab, you know, is that really all the prophets of God? Is that really all the prophets that you've got gathered together? And Ahab says, well, look at verse 8. Well, there is this one other guy, Micaiah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And so Jehoshaphat thinks, okay, well, let's get this guy along. Let's get, bring Micaiah in. And so they send away for Micaiah, and just before Micaiah is brought in, the messenger who gets him, says, right, you've got these 400 prophets all affirming Ahab. You better make sure that you do the same, Micaiah. Now, bear in mind, Ahab is a king who is quite happy to kill prophets. We saw that in 1 Kings 18. And so, I mean, Micaiah must have been terrified. And he comes before the king. Actually, look at what he says in verse 14. This is a great response from Micaiah. 
In the face of all that, he's standing alone and he says this, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. I'm only going to say what God says, says Micaiah. But then it gets a little confusing because when Ahab does ask him, it seems that Micaiah affirms the false prophets. You see that there in verse 15? It's as if he's saying, oh yeah, the false prophets are are correct. I'm not really sure what's happening here, but most of the commentators seem to see this as being um, a kind of sarcastic response. Apparently it's more obvious in the Hebrew. Uh, As one commentator says, phrased it brilliantly, Micaiah is sarcastically spouting the party line of Ahab's bootlickers. Uh, You can tell that guy was an American. Um, So it could be that. It could be that. I think that's probably what it is. But whatever his reason, it really exposes Ahab because Ahab knows that what Micaiah has just said is false. So he's saying, come on, tell tell me the truth. I know that's not what God has said. Tell me what is really going on here. And so Micaiah tells him, verse 17, that Ahab will be struck down. And as Israel's shepherd is struck down, the sheep of Israel will be scattered without a leader. How does Ahab respond to that very serious and somber prophecy? Turns around to Jehoshaphat and he says, see, what did I tell you? He never prophesies good about me. It's always bad. Now, this is just a, it's a really interesting section because Micaiah here is the prophet of God, bringing the word of God to this king. But why is it that Ahab rejects God's word? It's not because he somehow doubts its validity. He rejects it because ultimately he does not like what God's word says. And here's the thing. If this Bible is indeed where we see Jesus. If this is God's communication to the world, then why is it that it is so often rejected? And I think one of the big reasons people reject it is because they don't like what it says. You know, when I pick this up, when I read through the Bible, I read of a God who doesn't do things the way I would do them. There's stuff in here sometimes I'm just reading and I think, that is not how I would do that. There's stuff in here that I read and I find really hard and really difficult. There's stuff in here that I read that's that's so challenging that really exposes my heart and who I am as a person. But it shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because it's not our word. This is God's word. That's what makes it genuine. So think about it. If the word of God just affirmed everything that you did and believed like the 400 prophets of Ahab did. It's not real, is it? It's not genuine, it's just fake. You know, this, uh, apparently Thomas Jefferson, uh, president of America in the early 19th century, apparently he took the Bible and what he did was he, he literally cut out the bits with a pair of scissors, he cut out the bits that he didn't like in it uh, and he created his own Bible. I think actually you can still get that today, the kind of Jefferson version of the Bible. But you see how foolish that is. That's Ahab. That's what Ahab's doing. When he did that, no longer was the Bible the word of God, but it's the word of Thomas Jefferson. And it's what we see in so many churches today. 
oh, we'll just ignore that part of the Bible because it's too hard, or, oh, I don't like what it says there. We'll say, they'll say things like Ahab, oh, I don't like that part of the Bible because it sounds too bad, it sounds too judgmental. I, I want it to affirm the good stuff in me. Churches that don't proclaim the whole truth of Scripture, that don't hold on to everything that is written in here, are not real churches. Because if you ignore God's Word, you create your own Word, and therefore you create God in your own image, not the real God. And so this is the call for us today. Are you letting Jesus challenge you through His Word? Because I promise you that He will. It's really challenging the Word of God. I think about it, actually. When was the last time that you were really challenged by the Word of God? I can answer that this morning. Um, When was the last time you were really challenged by the Word of God? Because Jesus won't affirm, He won't necessarily affirm our choices or our cultural preference. And if you don't let the Bible shape and challenge you, you create the false God, the robotic God, that only affirms what you do. When the Bible speaks of stuff that's hard, do you reject it? Or do you think, no, I, I, I need to understand this. I'm going to work hard at trying to understand what it's saying here. But maybe the, the big danger here is not outright rejection. Maybe we just don't listen to it. Maybe we come here and, and it just goes in one word and out, uh, out the other. It may be more subtle, but it's just the same as Ahab because it's just ignoring what God says. We must listen to this word. We must stand by this word because we will always be in a world, always, regardless of what country or culture you're in, we will always be in a place that rejects God's word and we will be tempted to do the same. And that means for some that if you hold on to this Bible, you will be marginalized. Think about poor Micaiah, poor faithful Micaiah. He's all alone. In fact, he ends up in prison with hardly any food to eat. Why? Because he said what the Lord says. That's what I'm going to speak. He stood by Jesus. And like Micaiah, Jesus as as the word of God, as the revelation of God. How did people respond to him? Well, we, we crucified him. We can't think that if we stick with God, if we stick with God in his word, that somehow we won't face the same but I want 1 Kings twenty two fourteen. I think that's a great verse. I want that to be the strap line of this church. I really hope it is. I want that carved into this podium up here, this very wobbly podium. I want that verse carved in here so that whoever is up here speaking is reminded that what we are saying when we preach is not our opinions or our ideas. Who cares what, what I think? Um, well, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of you probably do. You're nice uh, and friendly. But at the end of the day, we, we don't need Andy Robertson's opinion. We need to hear the voice of God. And whoever's up here must speak what is written here because this is God's word. And it will challenge us. Second thing we see in this text, it's not just how how God's word, it's authentic because it challenges us, but we need more than that as well. We need these next two points. The second thing we see about God's word here is its clarity. We see that in verses 19 to 23. And what's really interesting about, well, I mean, what's interesting about these verses is Micaiah's explanation of why these 400 prophets gave the king uh, false, ungodly advice. 
And the thing that makes it interesting is not only was because it's not just that Ahab himself wanted to hear that, but actually God planned that that would happen and that he would respond in that way. So Micaiah speaks of a vision he had in which God is sitting on his throne. And notice the, con- notice the contrast here. Look in verse 23 to verse 10 to 12. You know, in verses 10 to 12, Jehoshaphat and Ahab are sitting in their regalia on their thrones, listening to this prophesying fiasco from this guy, Zedekiah, who, who comes before them with a, a hat made of bull's horns. Uh, you know, Zedekiah would have been a great preacher to go and watch, very flashy, very interesting, running about with his visual aids. He's got his hat made of bull horns, and he's saying, you guys are going to absolutely smash the Syrians like a bull goring him. But in Micaiah's vision, the Lord sits on his throne. And the contrast here is to show who the real king is And whose decision at the end of the day is going to ultimately stand? And it may trouble us a bit because, well, God willfully sends out a deceptive spirit. I think think that's meant to be Satan. That's what I would say. He sends out a deceptive spirit to entice Ahab through these false prophets. But what Micaiah is saying here is that everything, even the false teaching that seduces others away from God, even that, is in control by God. And that's a tremendous encouragement for those who are struggling because they see so much falsity done in the name of Christ. But we may look at this and we may think, well, is God being deceptive here? Well, actually, I think the whole point of this is to say no. In in fact, it's quite the opposite. God is being perfectly clear and transparent with Ahab, isn't he? He's saying, look, Ahab, this is what happened. This is why your guys prophesied falsely. He shows them exactly the kind of cosmic outworkings of what was going on behind the scenes of this false prophecy. He has been crystal clear to Ahab in explaining this, but Ahab wants none of it. And it's pertinent to us today because there is so much deception. There is so much falsity out there. How can we know truth? It's a big question that so many people are asking. How can we know what's true? Well, we need to look to the one who is truth, who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. But we must look to the real Jesus, not the Jesus of my imagination. We again, we look to the Jesus of the Bible. Every page in here is pointing towards him. This is God's word. So life is confusing. Life is muddled. There's a thousand voices like the prophets of Ahab telling us a thousand different things. But God's voice is very clear amidst the din. It's right, I mean, it's right here. Read it. It really is unlike anything else. Jesus is so clear. He is so clear on on what our greatest need is. He's so clear on what our problems are. He's so clear on our life, why we exist. He's clear on salvation. He's clear on eternity. He's clear on judgment. He is clear on so many issues. And we need it because often the greatest deception we face, and we will face as Christians can come not just from false teaching that that seeks to scratch our itching ears, as Paul says to Timothy, but we can be deceived by the devil. 
Do you know that one of the, we were seeing this this morning, one of the greatest ways that the devil will seek to deceive the church is by seeking to undermine the clarity of God's Word. He's done it from the beginning of time. He did it to Eve in Genesis 3 when he said to Eve, did God really say that you shouldn't do that? And it, uh, it's hurtful to see Christians saying that about stuff that God has been really clear on. Did God really say that that was wrong? And we ourselves can be self-deceptive. You know, we can deceive ourselves. I think we often base, we're in danger of basing what we think is true about ourselves and our standing with God upon our emotions and how we feel. So we think, oh, God's never going to forgive me because I've done that. Or God will never love me because of what I did last weekend. And if you feel that, don't listen to yourself. Listen to the clarity of the Word of God in those situations. You know, one of my heroes is um, the great reformer, Martin Luther. Um, he loved the Bible. I mean, he, he, he rebelled against the Catholic Church at the time by seeking to give this Bible, this Word, into the hands of every person because he did not believe that the church could interpret the Bible and therefore tell people how to live. He believed that God spoke to everyone. He's absolutely right. The clarity of God's Word is meant for all people And so he spent his whole life trying to get the Bible into the layperson's hands. Uh, And he would use Scripture whenever he kind of would deceive himself through how he felt. He would fight it off with Scripture. Um, So what he would do, uh, much to his wife's annoyance, is on their table, um, whenever he felt, you know, I don't feel at peace with God, he would take out a knife and he would carve in the table Romans 5 verse 1. You are now at peace with God through Christ Jesus. And he would remind himself, apparently his table was filled with scripture carvings, that even though that's what I feel, the clarity of what God has said is true. And I will not be deceived by what I feel because it's here in the word that God has made himself known. And it's here that I have truth. The clarity of the Bible, it's one of the best weapons we have for fighting for holiness and, uh, and for godliness. Do you know that the Bible often speaks of itself as a weapon? Ephesians calls it the, the sword of the Spirit. It's the Bible that we use to fight off temptation. That was Jesus' weapon. You know, when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was being tempted by Satan, how did Jesus fend off temptation? With the Word of God. With the scripture. God's word is so clear against deceptive spirits, deceptive desire, desires, and deceptive teaching. Thirdly, we need this final point though. We see the certainty of the true word. The thing that really testifies to the truth of God's word is ultimately its certainty. It's a very simple way you could determine between whether someone was a false prophet or a true prophet in the Old Testament. You would just determine it by, did it happen? And if it happened, then God really spoke to them. The true word always accomplishes what it says it will do. Micaiah knows this. You know, after he's thrown in prison for faithfulness to God's word, look at what he says in verse 28. He says, sorry, let me just find it. Micaiah said, if you return in peace, so he's saying to the king, so 
if you don't die in battle and you return in peace, then the Lord has not spoken to me. And he said, listen up, everyone hear this. If he returns in peace, then God has not spoken to me. But Ahab ignores him. And sadly, it seems, so does Jehoshaphat. And they go into battle together. Um, But it seems something about what Micaiah has said has got under Ahab's skin a little bit. I mean, we're meant to see his folly here in going against God's word. God says, you do this, you're going to die. Um, but Ahab thinks, well, I'll just disguise myself. He, he thinks that if he goes into battle with a fake mustache on, then God's word will not come to pass. But anyway, the Syrians go after Jehoshaphat. They think he's Ahab. They realize he's not. Um, and they turn from, the fight, they turn from fighting him. Uh, but let's read verse 34. Look how small it is and what happens. But a certain man, just some guy, drew his bow at random. And it struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died and the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went out through the army, every man to his city, and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. It's pretty gory details. Just flip back to chapter 20, verse 42. Ahab's first encounter with the word of God. Chapter 20, verse 42, this unnamed prophet says, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man who I I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be his life and your people for his people. And then have a look at verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 19, sorry, where it says, Elijah, he says to Ahab, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. It's graphic detail, but the whole point is that all this happened because God's word said it would happen, and God's word always accomplishes what it says it will do. The writer of Kings is clear. The whole course of human history is dictated by the word of God. Even the unknowing and the unwilling fulfill it. This random guy who who bent his bow and fired his arrow fulfilled the word of God. It's verified by the fact that what God says happens. So in Kings and all throughout the Old Testament, we have read of this promise of of a Messiah descended from the line of David, this great king who will bring God's promises to fruition, who will reign over all the nations and gather people from all countries under his throne, promises that he will save them from their sins, that he will defeat death, that he will destroy evil and Satan. And all those promises that were made back then, we have seen fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember John 5? These things testify to me. The true word accomplishes and fulfills everything it says. That means that when God's word says that if you continually reject him, 
then you will face judgment. You must take that very seriously. I mean, look at Ahab. Look at verse 39. Look at what our author says here. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did in the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers and Hazaiah, Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. See, the author's saying here, look, Ahab, you want to study Ahab's achievements? You want to look at what Ahab's built? You want, to, you want to know about his ivory tower? Well, go and read that somewhere else in the books of the Chronicles of the King. I've not included them here. Why? Because it doesn't matter. The end of the day, he died. He built his ivory tower. But what does that matter to a person who ultimately rejects the words of his creator? We're not on a neutral plane with God. If you reject him, he will reject you. It will happen, and all that we have made in this life will count for nothing. So listen now and come to Jesus. So serious, the word of God. But because God's word is so certain, it's not only the the promises of judgment that are certain, but it's also the promises of hope that are certain. That's why we, we desperately cling to Christ through the Bible every single day. Listen to these words of certainty, for they are the only truth that can comfort and encourage us to keep going. Remember Luther carving these, these great words of Scripture onto his table because they're clear and they're certain. You know, Jesus says, John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Notice, that's what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. They listen to Jesus, they know who he is, and they follow him. Then he goes on to say these marvelous words, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, when you get Jesus, you cannot lose Jesus. No matter what life throws at you, no matter how you may feel, and what makes us so sure that we can say that with such confidence, He told us. It's his word. His word cannot be broken, not even by our foolish sinfulness. We need this desperately. We need the certainties of the promises contained within this word if we are to keep going. There is nothing more precious. There is nothing more powerful. There is nothing more pertinent than the Bible. It's another three-point alliteration. I'm on fire tonight. Um, It's the word of God. It's the only thing that can challenge us and cause us to grow in holiness. This word is the lens by which we get a correct view of reality and of ourselves and and of the one who made us. This word delivers the, the certain promises that we need every day to keep us going. This word is a sword that will help us to fight off temptation and deception. This word is a seed that when planted in someone's life can bring about new life a new birth. It's the only thing that can do that. This word is the daily bread which sustains us on our walk with Christ. This word is the means by which we grow and learn and develop in our love and our affection for the Lord Jesus. This word is sweeter than honey, as the psalmist says. This word is more precious than gold. This here is God's greatest gift to humanity. Why do we let it gather dust? So many issues would be put into perspective if we spent time with Christ through his word. I speak to myself. The application of the sermon tonight is really simple. Read the Bible. That's it. 
you know, practically, well, how do we do this? How can we do this? Practically, why not find someone in the church or in your family just this week, let's, let's work at it this week. Every day, we're going to spend time reading the Bible and, and discuss it with each other. You know, you can, through texts or, or emails or through a WhatsApp group, just study the same book of the Bible and discuss it, whatever. Just strive for the Word of God. Let me just finish by pointing you to that. We're done, but let me just finish by pointing you to the end of 1 Kings uh, and the big picture of what's happening here. Jehoshaphat was, uh, you know, the, the, this is history, and so it's not as black and white as, as good and bad. Jehoshaphat was kind of a complex character. He was a good king in many ways, but he was not perfect. Just look at verse 43 of chapter 22. Jehoshaphat, he walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So that's the king in the north. What about the king in the south, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab? Look at verse 52. He did, um, sorry, this is the king in the north now. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father did. So how do we end the book of one kings? Two kings. A righteous king who compromised on the word of God and a wicked king who rebelled against the word of God. And we're reminded of where this book has taken us. We need a king. You know, verse 17, the sheep were scattered because of this wicked king. We need a king who said, who looked upon those scattered sheep like sheep without a shepherd and who gathered them together under his cross. Jesus is the ultimate king because not only was he perfectly obedient to God's word, he is God's word. We listen to his voice. Everything seems so uncertain, but we listen to him. There are two things the Christian can be sure of. God's king reigns on his throne, and God's word will always accomplish what it's set out to do. Let's always be attentive and always listening to the voice of our shepherd king. Let's pray as we finish. Father, we want to thank you for your Bible, for your word. Everything in here is from you, not from man. It's all from you. And Lord, that's difficult in some regards because there's stuff here that is hard for us to hear. And yet you have told us this because we need to hear it. Father, we thank you that you're there and you're not silent. And although there are things that we struggle with in your word, and we admit that there are stuff we find difficult, there's so much wonderful treasure in here that helps us to keep going. Lord, challenge us daily through your word. Let's not be like Ahab who just wanted affirmation, but Father, may we seek truth above all. We pray, Lord, that the clarity of your word would shine forth when we read of of who we are in Christ and what he has done for us. Father, we pray that we would hold on to the certainty of the great promises we see in your word. Help us to say, like the psalmist said, 
and to say it with, with genuine honesty that your word is sweeter than honey and it is more precious to us than all the gold in the world. Father, I pray that as a church we would stick with the Bible and with the Jesus of the Bible. May we never, ever stop proclaiming the word of God. May we stand by it, no matter how hard the opposition might be. But may we grow in it and understand it, and may we love you more as we spend time with you in your word. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.